When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Edward Thornton held his head high. He was riding, in the second rank of his regiment, three troopers from the right edge, with Colonel Oakey leading them in triumph through the city they had just conquered. The citizens lined the streets, or watched from windows and doorways, mostly in silence. At times, Thornton saw angry scowls, or fearful faces as shutters and doors slammed close. At others, he and his comrades were cheered, the names of their officers acclaimed as heroes and saviours. Once or twice an angry yell came from the crowd, but it wasn't taken up, and the shouts died out in an embarrassing mumble. This was London. Of all the cities and towns Thornton thought he'd one day march through as an occupying force, the capital had never crossed his mind. He fought for Parliament, after all. He'd helped defend London twice, at Edge Hill, and at Turnham Green he'd been one of those standing between the king and the capital. But now, because of the machinations of a few devious MPs, here they were, forced to come here and set things right. Stealing a glance over his shoulder, Thornton saw the carriage which carried his commander, General Fairfax. Turning back to face ahead, Thornton didn't need to stand in his saddle to see who led the vanguard. Through a forest of glinting pikes and shouldered muskets, he made out the figure of General Cromwell. Thornton didn't know what would happen next. Oh, he knew the practicalities. The army, all 18,000 men or so, were marching to Croydon to set up camp, where they would keep an eye on things. But the bundle of papers Thornton felt inside his redcoat, half secretly passed to him by a trooper from Colonel Saxby's regiment, made him think. The pamphlet spoke a lot of sense. It called for justice for the army and for all Englishmen. It promised social change, in a way which Thornton had never seen expressed before. He agreed with much of it, and he'd heard plenty of his fellow soldiers, and even a few of the officers, say similar things. What had this war been fought for, after all, if not justice? Welcome to Pax Britannica. Season 2, Episode 61. London Has Fallen.
Welcome back to Pax Britannica. I'm your host, Samuel Hume. Before we begin today, we have to welcome the new members of my Patreon House of Lords, the Marquess of Beaumont and Cressford, Philip Allen, the Earl of Lucan, Hamish Ivy Law, Alexandru, Viscount Petrescu, and Joran, Baron Burr. They, along with every other patron, receive ad-free podcasts. Go to patreon.com slash paxbritannica to find out more. Also, apologies for the large gap between episodes. I caught a bug which outstayed its welcome by several weeks, and then I had to meet a very important PhD deadline. Last episode, we saw how the relationship between the new model army and the English parliament had almost completely broken down. In the complicated manoeuvring which followed the civil war, Parliament was now dominated by the Presbyterian faction, with Denzel Halls as their leading light. Halls had a plan to deal with the king, end the ongoing war in Ireland, and remove the threat the army posed to his vision of post-war England. Unfortunately for him, as we saw last time, the army had a few conditions, and wouldn't budge until they were met. Halls dramatically overestimated his position, and instead of granting these concessions, he attempted to force the submission of the new model army. This, of course, only increased the resentment of the soldiers towards Parliament, and within the ranks, they would begin to elect their own representatives, draft and sign petitions, and debate the future of the kingdom with their officers. After months of increasing tensions, we left off with the army about to take the initiative. They would take possession of the King of England. The question of who knew about the plot to take possession of Charles is debated. Fairfax later claimed he was completely powerless in the situation. His sickness came at a very inconvenient, or perhaps very convenient, time. Cornet Joyce almost certainly had some support from Oliver Cromwell. Just before riding to the King's palace arrest at Holmby House, he visited Cromwell at his house on Drury Lane, right next door to the Muffin Man. The question is whether Joyce came to Cromwell with his plan already in mind, with Cromwell giving his blessing, whether Joyce informed Cromwell that the army was going to take the king, and Cromwell saw no way to prevent it, and so backed it to maintain some authority, or if Cromwell orchestrated the whole thing. Gentles falls into the Cromwell gave his blessing camp. Lipscomb states outright that Cromwell ordered Joyce to capture the king. Fraser suggests the first part of the plan was made by Cromwell and his allies, but that the plan was to depose the Presbyterian commander of Holmby House and take over the garrison guarding Charles, not to move him. Christopher Hill sits on the fence, noting that it's difficult to tell whether Cromwell was the mastermind or merely backed the plan once Joyce made clear how much support it had in the army. Whatever the case, Joyce rode to Oxford on the 1st of June, 1647, and secured the arsenal there, and then, the following day, he led 500 cavalry to Holmby, or Holdenby House, both names are used. Here, he informed the Presbyterian officer in command that his services were no longer needed, and that he was now under arrest. That officer, Colonel Graves, did not take the news well. Before Joyce could take him into custody, he mounted his horse and escaped on horseback. Joyce was obviously panicked and wrote to Cromwell, quote, Sir, we have secured the king. Graves is run away. You must hasten to answer to us and let us know what we shall do. Before anyone in London could reply, though, Joyce decided that he couldn't just sit around at Holmby House and wait for Graves to come back with reinforcements. He met with Charles, 
and informed him that he was moving him. And Charles essentially said, okay. But when the king was getting ready for travel, he turned to Joyce and asked, where is your commission? Where were the written orders from Fairfax or Cromwell ordering him to take custody of the king? Though the meaning of the following exchange is known, the exact wording of what follows differs greatly, and so I'm going to go with my favourite one. When Charles kept asking Joyce where his orders were, he was just a cornet after all. He wasn't meant to be doing things like take custody of the king without orders. Joyce got all flustered and pointed back at the 500 cavalry he had led here. Here, here is my commission. The king looked at the assembled soldiers, back to Joyce, and said, quote, It is as fair a commission and as well written as I have seen a commission written in my life. End quote. Joyce had a small army of armed and mounted men. Both he and Charles knew that that was all the authority needed to take a sovereign into custody. Such was the world they now lived in. So Charles mounted up, and Joyce led the king to Newmarket, possibly at the king's suggestion, because he knew that that was near the general headquarters of the new model army. When they got there, there wasn't anywhere suitable to actually house the king, Because of course not. No one had expected the sudden arrival of a king. A house was soon found in nearby Cambridge, and Charles was kept out of sight. Meanwhile, down in London, when Cromwell received word of what Joyce had done, he hurriedly fled the capital. Whether or not he'd actually ordered Joyce to take the king, Halls and his other enemies would believe that he had, and he would be arrested. Indeed, he received warning that when he arrived at the Commons the next day, Halls was going to have him sent to the Tower of London. So before that could happen, Cromwell jumped off the fence he had been straddling between Parliament and the army, and decisively sided with the army. He left under the cover of darkness, and soon arrived at the general rendezvous at Newmarket, around the same time that the king was being shown around his new gilded cage at Cambridge. The army's muster at Newmarket was an intoxicating experience of fraternal unity, says Gentles. Fairfax was cheered everywhere he went, and the soldiers swore a covenant to stay united until their grievances were all addressed. The solemn engagement of the army, which this oath was named, was sent to Parliament on the 8th of June, to make the politicians well aware of how serious they now were. A general council of the army was to be formed, consisting of the leading officers of the army, as well as two enlisted men and two officers from each regiment. This was to meet in the following month, July. Christopher Hill, the famous Marxist historian of the period, think all the way back to our episode on the historiography of the Wars of the Three Kingdoms, somewhat cheekily calls the General Council a soldier's Soviet, and it wouldn't be completely out of place in 20th century Petrograd. A printing press was found and put into service, publishing pamphlets, arguing the army's case in order to win the battle for public opinion. Men were sent out across the kingdom to gather support, political and otherwise, from allies. New model agitators successfully orchestrated the mutiny of the Northern Army against the Presbyterian Major General Points, and he was arrested. In London, many soldiers of the trained bands were refusing to obey the orders of their new Presbyterian officers. So here, we have the two most important parts of Hall's anti-new model coalition either taken off the board or of questionable loyalty. Unreliable men were forced out of the army. 
About 7% of the officers and 4% of the soldiers were rejected due to being too politically Presbyterian. In the place of these officers came new men, from much lower social classes and much more radical views. Men like Thomas Pride, William Goff, Thomas Harrison, who became majors and colonels and, in time, judges in an unprecedented trial. Halls and the Presbyterians were suddenly on the defensive. On the 3rd of June, the Commons voted, finally, for full back pay for the army, and even denounced and expunged the declaration of dislike from the records. But this was far too little, far too late to, as Fraser puts it, avoid reaping the whirlwind. Let Mysteries at Midnight be your destination for detective whodunits and captivating mystery stories. You'll hear classic stories like Sherlock Holmes, Agatha Christie's Poirot, and short tales from H.G. Wells, Charles Dickens, Edgar Allan Poe, and others. I'm Christopher, and I read these classic stories in the soothing style of a bedtime story, so you can listen to them in bed when you drift off to sleep. I also host the number one sleep podcast in the world called Sleep Cove, where millions drift off to meditations, hypnosis and bedtime stories. We soon realised that listeners wanted to hear our mystery stories all in one place. So we created Mysteries at Midnight, where you can listen to all new tales every week. Search for Mysteries at Midnight on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or your favourite podcast app and follow and subscribe so you don't miss out on new episodes. So why don't you pick a story now? And can you guess the twist? Was the Sphinx 10,000 years old? Were there serial killers in ancient Greece and Rome? What were the lives of transgender, intersex, and non-binary people like in the ancient world? We're Jen. And Jenny. From Ancient History Fangirl. We tell you true stories and tall tales of the ancient world. Sometimes we do it tipsy. Sometimes we have amazing guests on our show, historians like Barry Strauss, podcasters like Liv Albert, Mike Duncan, and authors like Joanne Harris and Ben Aronovich. We take you to the top of Hadrian's Wall to watch the Roman Empire fall at the end of the world. We walk the catacombs beneath the Temple of the Feathered Serpent under Teotihuacan. We walk the sacred spirals of the Nazca Lines in search of ancient secrets. And we explore mythology from ancient cultures around the world. Come find us at ancienthistoryfangirl.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Over the next two weeks, the New Model Army advanced on Parliament, both militarily and politically. If you don't know the geography of this next bit, don't worry. All you need to know is that the New Model Army is slowly getting closer and closer to London. The army moved from Newmarket to Thriplow Heath, where parliamentarian commissioners arrived and were heckled with shouts of justice, justice. On the 10th of June, the army advanced again, stopping at Royston. Here, a manifesto was written and sent to the city of London, which laid the blame for the divide between parliament and its army solely at the feet of the politicians. They were forcing this issue to save themselves from, quote, question and punishment, end quote. Whereas the army was merely demanding a just settlement of their grievances, and insisted that their political aspirations ended at that, quote, 
We have said it before, and we profess it now. We desire no alteration in the civil government. End quote. Then the next day, they marched from Royston to St Albans. This was within the prescribed 25 mile boundary from London. The army was not meant to cross this invisible Rubicon, and Parliament freaked out. The army was coming. The army was coming, and they aren't following our orders. Panic set in. London was set on a war footing. Shops were closed, and the trained bands were called up, only for most of the militia to stay home. Even with the threat of execution for desertion, only the Westminster Regiment mustered in any reasonable strength. On the 14th of June, Fairfax issued the Declaration, or Representation, of the Army, justifying their political activities because, quote, We were not a mere mercenary army hired to serve any arbitrary power of a state, end quote. The text of this declaration was probably drafted by Henry Ireton. It proposed the purging of Parliament and new elections for the Commons. Soon, the army leadership, most likely Ireton and Cromwell, drafted articles of impeachment for 11 Presbyterian MPs for hostility to the army, for plotting with the king and with the Scots, and for trying to instigate another war. Or, as Gentles puts it, for plotting a counter-revolution. These 11 MPs included, of course, Denzel Halls, but also Edward Massey, Sir Philip Stapleton, and Sir William the Conqueror Waller. Parliament resisted at first, but in order to buy time, eventually suspended the members and promised to examine the charges. Those members began preparing their defences, both legal and otherwise. One lawyer brought in to help their case was William Prynne, the famous victim of Lord and Star Chamber. While suspended, though, the 11 members were not just merely looking to their legal defences, they continued to try and whip up the trained bands and the reformados against the army. In response, Fairfax marched the new model closer to the capital, spreading them out in an arc around the city. In the meantime, the army decided to make use of the king they now had, thanks to Joyce. Cromwell warned the man in charge of the king's custody not to needlessly antagonise Charles, especially on matters of his personal religion. This was clever, because when the parliamentary commissioners arrived for their meeting with the king, and learnt that Charles was holding Anglican services in the pre-war Laudian style, which had now been banned by the Assembly of Divines, they ordered that his chaplains be removed, which did nothing to warm the king up towards Parliament. Soon after that, Fairfax moved the army even closer to London, camping at Uxbridge. This was so close to the capital that if this was 400 years later, the army would already be in London. Fairfax ordered the king to be moved to Windsor Castle, and then from there was moved to Caversham. To quote from Fraser, The scene was set for a sincere attempt on the part of the independent army leaders to reach a settlement with the king. After all, it was just possible that they had misjudged the king, attributing to him some of the chicanery which rightfully belonged to their political opponents. End quote. But Charles is still Charles, and his unjustified self-confidence was still going strong. In the opening meeting between the army leadership and the king, Henry Ireton frustratedly informed him, Sir, you have an intention to be an arbitrator between the Parliament and us, and we mean it to be between your majesty and the Parliament. End quote. 
The king simply did not recognise that the army was the power broker here, not himself. He believed that the divisions within the army, which were there under the surface, could be used in his favour. On the 4th of July, Cromwell met with the king, and it went shockingly well. Positive rumours began to spread that a settlement with the king would be agreed within a matter of days. Fairfax and Cromwell offered the king a range of generous acts of goodwill, including a visit from his younger children and access to his choice of chaplains. This visit from Prince James, Princess Elizabeth and Prince Henry actually took place on the 15th of July. There was even talk, from hardline Puritans like Cromwell and Ireton no less, of Catholic toleration in a post-war settlement. The insistence on religious toleration among the independents, and the sincere desire to sort this all out without further war, meant that previously unimaginable concessions were being imagined. These terms were hashed out, and eventually a series of propositions were agreed by the army council. These included general toleration for Catholics, provided they did not bear arms nor communicate with foreign Catholic powers. Even the oath of supremacy had a workaround, if the Pope allowed for an oath of loyalty to secular authority. No need to deny the spiritual authority of the Pope if you swore an oath not to deny the secular authority of the king. But the propositions went nowhere. Well, they went to two places, and then they went nowhere. They went to London, where the House of Commons refused them, and they went to Rome, where they reached the Holy Father's entree in January 1648, and were promptly condemned. So ends a very interesting and short-lived attempt by a group of mainly radical Protestants to institutionalise Catholic toleration in England. On the 16th of July, the General Council met for the first time in Reading. Here, we start to see determined attempts by army levellers to influence events. We'll speak more about them when we cover the Putney debates, but for now they pushed for an immediate march on London in order to enforce the army's demands and free political prisoners. Fairfax, Cromwell and other leaders urged caution, and the next day, Henry Ireton presented his draft settlement. This was the Heads of Proposals. With assistance from Lord Wharton and Viscount Say and Seal, the proposals were intended to come to terms with the King before the King came to terms with either Parliament or with the Scots. It basically took the Newcastle propositions of the previous year, which Charles hated, and made them much more palatable. Instead of Parliament controlling the military for 20 years, it would be 10. Parliament would only nominate the King's ministers for 10 years rather than forever. The bishops could come back, albeit without any coercive powers. The Book of Common Prayer could come back, albeit only to be used if chosen by a congregation. The Solemn League and Covenant would be revoked, and only five royalists would be spared amnesty. In matters of political reform, however, the proposals went much further than the Newcastle propositions. The current Parliament, the Long Parliament, would be dissolved within a year, and future parliaments would be called every two years. Parliamentary constituencies would be reformed according to taxation. Various unpopular taxes would be abolished, including forest laws and trade monopolies, and tax rates would be equalised across the kingdom. The right to petition would be confirmed, and subjects would have the right not to incriminate themselves in a criminal trial. Think pleading the fifth in the United States. Many of these reforms show how widespread the leveller influence was becoming. 
With all these points agreed, the monarchy and the royal family would be restored to their position, safety, and honour, without any further limits to their power. The heads of proposals were finalised over the next few days, and then, unofficially, sent to the king to peruse ahead of their formal presentation, to get him used to the terms. The terms of the heads of proposals were very generous for a king who had been militarily defeated, and who was currently sitting in a comfortable imprisonment with the enemy army. Lord Berkeley, the man who, officially unofficially, gave the terms to the king, found them shockingly moderate. When presenting them to the king, Berkeley gave his opinion, quote, Never was a crown so near lost, so cheaply recovered as his majesty's would be, if they agreed upon such terms, end quote. So obviously, Charles, in his idiom, rejected them outright. When the army grandees arrived on the 28th of July to formally present the heads of proposals to Charles, he spoke to them in, quote, sharp and bitter language. He told the army leadership, quote, you cannot be without me. You will fall to ruin if I do not sustain you, end quote. Berkeley, shocked at the king's passionate opposition, hurried over to his side and whispered in his ear. He asked what secret strength the king had been hiding to make him think that rejecting the proposals was a good idea. What better option did he have? Even this call for sense was ignored. Three days later, the king formally rejected the heads of proposals. This attitude came as a real surprise to the grandees. It seemed like this was an easy win for everyone. The king had seemed open to their terms earlier in the month, and his military and political position hadn't abruptly improved. Even Cromwell had come to see the king as, quote, the uprightest and most conscientious man of his three kingdoms, end quote. He'd watched Charles meet with his children, and the sight of Charles the father interacting with his kids made him cry. He had thanked Providence and the king for rejecting the Newcastle propositions, because in doing so, he had spared the kingdom from Presbyterianism. And now, Charles was here, and they could come to much better terms. So why did Charles reject these terms? What else? But overconfidence and his ever-present and unjustified self-belief in his own political skill. Next to the king's side when he rejected the heads of proposals was John Maitland, Earl of Lauderdale. The king felt confident that the Scots would fight for him. His wife, Henrietta Maria was already in talks with the Scottish government, as we'll see next episode. With the Thirty Years' War winding down, he was also hopeful that his dynastic ties could now bear military assistance. And of course, he'd not given up on the Irish Confederates. Another reason is that Charles simply did not trust the grandees. They had just won the war, they had him in their hands, and they asked for nothing for themselves. No titles, no property, no specific role in government. He simply didn't believe this altruism. Another factor which boosted Charles's confidence was that, in London, events had spiralled out of control. On the 22nd of July, the Commons, in their latest attempts to appease the ever-approaching new model army, voted to restore independence to the committee which controlled the trained bands. Four days later, when Parliament reassembled, all hell broke loose. The London crowds besieged both houses, demanding the restoration of Presbyterian control over the militias. A delegation of city officials arrived to meet with the lords on this matter, 
and the lords denied them. Whereupon the aldermen went home, but the crowd did not. A group of Presbyterian clergy, officers and local authorities asserted their leadership over the people, and essentially tried to use the whipped-up crowd to seize power in a coup d'etat. First, they broke into the House of Lords, and overwhelmed by the numbers and the anger, the peers were forced to recall the militia motion. Then the protesters stormed the commons and did the same thing, effectively placing the trained bands back into Presbyterian control. But the insurrectionists weren't done yet. The MPs were forced to stay in their seats, and the Speaker was instructed to present a motion recalling the King to London, and the MPs, with the threat of violence hanging over them, voted in favour. Now, after the fact, Halls and the rest of the 11 members denied ever instigating, supporting, or guiding insurrection on the 26th of July. But in the following days, Halls returned in triumph to the Commons, recalled by a firmly Presbyterian Commons, ready to lead the defence of London from the New Model Army. Because the New Model Army was coming. The agitators, who had agitated for a march on London, could now point to the effective coup against the army and independency as proof that they had been right. In the wake of the insurrection, an exodus of MPs and lords arrived at Fairfax's camp. 57 MPs and 8 peers fled to the army for safety, including the speakers of both houses. So on the 29th of July, Fairfax ordered the army to march on London, with his troops crying out, Lords and Commons and a free Parliament. In London the next day, a new committee of safety was established, and Edward Massey appointed to command the defence of the city. The committee also ordered Fairfax to keep the army more than 30 miles away from the city limits, which, well, I can't imagine anyone thought that was actually going to work anymore. Inside London, on the 2nd, clashes between pro-independent civilians and pro-Presbyterian militia troops broke out. On the 3rd, Fairfax camped at Hounslow Heath, just a short march from the walls. It looked like the trained bands would actually try and resist the new model. But then the next day, the independent-minded Southwark militia, guarding their walls and the approach to London Bridge, switched sides. When they opened their gates, the new model army surged into the capital. Whatever hope the Presbyterians had of resisting the army, however slim it had been, was gone. London had fallen. Over the next two days, the New Model Army imposed its rule over the capital. This was, as far as I can tell, entirely bloodless. The Lord Mayor and Aldermen of the city met with Fairfax in Hyde Park, and offered what must have been very hastily written speeches of welcome. It didn't save the Lord Mayor, who along with three aldermen, was taken into custody. A new Lord Mayor was appointed, one of the army's choosing. Fairfax met with the London Common Council, who also welcomed him and his forces. The Presbyterian Constable of the Tower of London was replaced by an independent officer, and the independents who had been purged from the militia committee were restored to their seats and their majority. The speakers, MPs and lords were escorted back to the Palace of Westminster, where a day of thanksgiving was voted and a month's pay awarded to the army. The defences of the capital, constructed just four years previously, were demolished. The eleven members managed to escape the city, with seven of them fleeing abroad. 
This included Halls, Massey, Waller, and Stapleton. But other than these now powerless enemies on the run, the army had enforced its rule. On the 7th of August, 1647, the entire new model force, 18,000 strong, marched through London in triumph. A garrison was left guarding the tower, and another guarding the Palace of Westminster. The rest of the army was en route to their new headquarters in Croydon, now a borough of Greater London, but back then entirely separate. This march was a display of power. Fairfax had fallen ill once again and stayed inside his carriage. Oliver Cromwell, healthy as ever, rode triumphantly at the head of his regiment, which was at the vanguard of the column. Parliament's own army had done that which the king had never come close to achieving. London had been conquered. Next time, we will see how events unfold in the other two kingdoms. As we've touched on, Charles is convinced that he still has cards to play in Scotland and Ireland. Secret agreements are being made, and Scottish politics was almost as divided as their southern neighbours. And in the midst of all of this, in Ireland, the Marquis of Ormond handed over the Lord Deputyship to his parliamentary replacement and set sail for England. I'm leaving the survey up for a little bit longer, so if you haven't had a chance to fill it in yet and you'd like to, there'll be a link in the description. Thank you to my House of Lords, including but not limited to the King's favourite Mike Sanders, Damien, Duke of Portland, Brent Sitz, Marcus of Ludlow, and Dylan Drolet, Earl of Waterford. Remember that every patron, regardless of rank, receives an RSS feed, which you can put in any podcast app to listen to the podcast ad-free. If you want to support the podcast in other ways, please recommend it to a friend or post about the show on social media. Thank you to Sounds Like an Earful for the interval music used in today's episode, to my entire House of Lords, and to you for listening. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a historian, professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that provides a complete overview of U.S. history through storytelling, yet keeps the rigor you'd expect in a university class. Starting with 22-year-old George Washington in his first battle, join me for a chronological telling of the United States' story, its unlikely revolution, fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way through the progressive era. Find History That Doesn't Suck wherever you get your podcasts. Hello. My name is Matt, host of the Pirate History Podcast. Pirates rank among the most mythologized and romanticized of all historical figures. It can become easy to forget that pirates were real people that had real-world concerns. If you like tales of high seas adventure, daring do, and also want to learn more about who Blackbeard supported to be king, you can learn more about all of that at the Pirate History Podcast.